This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joey Gupta. Let's jump into our next topic. The CRTC has announced that Canada will be getting a mental health crisis line. Canadians who need immediate mental health crisis intervention will be able to text or call 988 and obtain counselling in the fall of next year, so 2023. This follows a similar service that was launched this summer in the United States. Michelle, we talked about the American service when it launched. What do you want to explore here? Well, uh, the American service is, is, as ever with these things, the devil's in the details, and the details haven't gotten talked about a whole lot with the American service. And I feel like that might be a bit of the case with the Canadian one, at least at this point, although in fairness, the Canadian details, a lot of them still have yet to emerge. Uh, yes, the 988 hotline went live in the U.S. last month, but it, was only, it, it wasn't fully ready to roll. Um, there was still a lot of work to be done to line up the necessary mental health supports in various states. Uh, there were some sort of telecom infrastructure things to work around. So it launched, but it wasn't you know, fully up and running. And there was still quite a lot of work to be done with that. In Canada now, at least, we have a timeline. Uh, it's been very slow to get off the ground. This was a, a push to institute such a line here that got unanimous political support about a year and a half ago. And only this week did we hear that, yes, okay, the work is underway, and it won't really be here until November of 2023. So I find it an interesting concept and notion, but because it's such still in such the early planning stage, I thought we could take some time to um, you know, spitball a few ideas and throw things at the wall and see how... Dave Brown and friends envision this 988 hotline taking shape next year. Yeah, I, I think this first question is pretty straightforward and self-explanatory. I think folks by its nature will understand the benefit here. But, Juita, as you think about the benefits of a 988 emergency mental health crisis and suicide prevention line, what are the benefits that stand out to you? Well, the first one and the most obvious one is that it's an easy number for people to remember, especially if they're dealing with a crisis. I think it's also going to be as you said, very important in uh, suicide prevention. And it's going to be one of those rare options that will be available across Canada, which I think is massively important because mental health supports Mm -hmm. are not evenly distributed across this country. And I think the other sort of unanticipated benefit is that even as we have a conversation about 988, it reduces at least the hope is, it reduces the stigma of reaching out and asking for help and, and reduce some of that stigma around mental health and mental illness and hopefully gets a conversation started. So I would say there's obviously some uh, obvious benefits to 988 itself as an emergency hotline, but the knock-on effects of that would be a national conversation about the importance of providing support for mental health and mental well-being. Yeah, when I think about immediate benefits, it's something that we've had in conversations to, in general, reform in regards to first response, which is yes. let's let let's make sure that professionals are dealing with mental health rather than people who may not have the appropriate training on mental health. And certainly, there's a stopgap that can exist here that says, okay, we're going to try to get you some immediate counseling and then that person can make an evaluation to understand what is the next step here in this moment. Michelle, I want to give you the same opportunity to think about benefits. 
Building on what you were saying about first responders, I think another really crucial point here is that this one's going to bypass the police. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy about having police attending mental health calls. This has been a very fraught issue. This line will hopefully help sort of mitigate some some of that by not involving the police at the outset and getting mental health people involved much faster. So I think that's a really crucial potential benefit of this. And that's very similar to what's in place in the U.S. The other obvious benefit is kind of what Joita was talking about. Not only is it going to be accessible across the country, I think it's a very equitable solution in that it's it's not going to cost any money to, to access. So it uh, not only covers a lot of geographic territory, but it helps hopefully connect the dots for people with lower incomes who might not be able to afford their own counseling. We shared a story on the show yesterday in regards to some staffing shortages going on with 911 services in British Columbia. So as I think about what's going to happen here in the next year as we develop the details and roll this out. I know staffing shortages has become something of a almost an inane buzzword over the course of the last year and the way it's utilized. But I think it's really important here that we're making sure the service is appropriately staffed from a volume standpoint, but we're also ensuring that the people that are being brought in to do this are adequately trained, which may actually create a knock-on effect in a negative way, which is we already don't have enough therapists. We already don't have enough access for day-to-day mental health support in this country. So I worry about some splitting that may that may occur there. Joita, as you think about this next year, what are some of the priorities, but what are some of the stumbling blocks that you foresee? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's imperative that this line is staffed by trained professionals. In a lot of uh, crisis line situations, um, crisis lines are staffed by volunteers, and I'm all for uh, encouraging volunteerism. Uh, But in a situation like this, when you're dealing with a high level of stress, you're dealing with callers in distress, you're dealing with callers who are potentially suicidal, you do need uh, people with professional training and you do need to have paid employees staffing the line uh, vis-a-vis unpaid volunteers, if for no other reason than to ensure that there's continuity and you're not training new people every six months. Um, But I think that, at least my hope is, that given the timeline around rolling out um, this program, uh, they're talking about launching the program in November 2023. So we've got a little over a year left. My hope is that some resources can be diverted towards training uh, professionals um, in the next 12 to 18 months to try and address some of that that splitting that you talked about, because you're right, there is already a shortage of mental health professionals, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, you name it. We're already very strained in terms of the number of people who are available. So my hope is that this will be a problem that will be addressed early on by increasing capacity for programs, allowing people to enroll, um, you know, targeting specific communities. Uh, I think I mentioned this in relation to our healthcare conversation a few weeks ago, that it's really important to recruit people from communities, hoping that they'll serve those communities once they're trained up. So mm-hmm. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of things to, of, to be factored in. The one other thing I'll say in terms of a priority is cultural competency. Um, yes. It's a really important conversation in Canada where uh, not everybody speaks English or French, so we need to ensure we have a multilingual service. We have an indigenous population and other racialized communities that have a lot of intergenerational trauma and who are dealing with the legacy of colonialism. So we really need to think about creating a service that isn't just taking the same template and, and, and applying it across the board, irrespective of who calls, uh, but is really responsive to the unique 
histories and challenges faced by Canadians in different walks of life. The last thing I'll say is that moving forward in, in the implementation of the service, one of the priority areas that I see is having a very straight up conversation about the limitations of a service like this. It's not a substitute for ongoing serve, ongoing treatment or therapy. It's not a way to take, it, it doesn't take away from an urgent and overdue conversation about needing to implement greater therapy and mental health professional and bringing in more mental health professionals on a day-to-day -day basis so that people can have that ongoing support. Calling a crisis line is important, but it's not the same thing as having an ongoing relationship with a therapist or a counselor. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Michelle, just before I hand things back over to you, I do want to point something out here in regards to ensuring that we have trained employees. And this isn't necessarily something that can be solved inside the next 12 months. But when we think about other first responders, firefighters, police, EMTs, these are certification programs that are occurring mostly at the college level at, in provinces. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we're going to have to develop a national standardization for provincial programs to be staffing these things appropriately, because we can't just be nabbing undergrads from psychology departments. We need to be giving people the appropriate training. Sorry, Michelle, I, I, I know I want to give you a little room here in regards to stumbling blocks and priorities that we may encounter over the course of the next year. <laughs> No, that's a really good point. And, and honestly, we're, we're all on the same page because my big concern also has to do with resources of, on, on the mental health delivery side. Uh, there are some infrastructure issues that the, the CRTC has to sort out before next year, before that can come to pass. So it's possible there are some delays there while some provinces uh, drop 10-digit dialing, excuse me, implement, drop seven-digit dialing and implement 10-digit one as one potential barrier. But my big, big thing is absolutely on not just people who are staffing the line itself. And I'll note that those people are going to have to be able to respond by phone or by text. You can text 988. So that's a whole other method of service delivery that people are going to have to get up to speed on that doesn't really exist for 911, at least as far as I know. Um, but more than even just the immediate crisis line response is the community response, because that's ultimately where the line is going to have to bridge those gaps, connect people with mental health providers. And if there simply aren't mental health providers to be had in the necessary areas, then we have a serious problem and the line is not really fulfilling its mandate. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are going to have to ramp up and enter the system in what really is pretty tight timeline if you're looking at it from that perspective. Especially when we're talking about establishing protocols, because if this is bypassing the police, there are still going to be emergency scenarios where police may be required. So what is mm -hmm. the tripwire for that? What is the protocol when a first responder does actually need to be sent to that situation? Because we have, totally. to, be, we have to be really clear. There are moments when a first responder is definitely required and immediately required in these situations. Yeah. I should point out that we these conversations might be happening. There might already be some no notions in place around this. We just don't know. The, the yeah. info available, we're having this a really early date for this conversation. The announcement just got made on Wednesday. Maybe some of the 18 months since the political conversation opened up and the push to get this implemented began to really take shape. Um, but you're right. There's there some very, very complex details and, and maybe... Maybe they're in the works. Maybe Canada's hoping to learn a bit from the U.S. implementation. Who knows? But 
it's hard to yeah. fully assess the picture at this point. So let's just very quickly talk about that delay. I'm going to kind of hold uh, you guys each to sort of 30 to 45 seconds on this. I'll simply say that, as you mentioned, Michelle, it's been over a year since this received uni- unanimous political support. We only got the announcement from the CRTC this past week. I would suggest the sensitivity of this would require some delay, some kind of internal consulting. But I also believe that if we've learned one thing over the course of the last couple of years, the pandemic has very much impacted the wheels of bureaucracy and the wheels of bureaucracy are turning slowly on this. So even if it was something of a priority, I think that just the way in which business has gotten done, certainly with federal institutions, has been very slow in the last couple of years. Joita, a theory on the delay and then last word to Michelle. Yeah, I think it's a lot of it comes down to the pandemic and just how it's gummed up the system a little bit and things have slowed down owing to the pandemic. Plus, I think as we've alluded to in our conversation, it is a very complex um, situation with a number of factors that need to be considered and things that need to be put in place before they can implement it. And honestly, I'd rather they take their time and get it right rather than implement it now and have all kinds of problems um, along the way. Michelle, a theory on some of the delay? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Uh, The CRTC absolutely had to be on board with this. This was not optional. They're the ones who are going to be upholding a lot of the infrastructure piece. So they needed to be ready to weigh in and and participate in this process. So I suspect that was part of the delay. But I will note that unanimous political support does not always necessarily equate to speedy action. And to that, I point to a little piece of legislation called the Accessible Canada Act, Mm. which did have unanimous political support when it was tabled and and passed, uh, but still uh, is not nearly as formed as a lot of people were hoping to see three years in. 2019? July 2019? June 2019? June 2019, yep. Yeah, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. There's been a couple elections. There's been a couple elections that have, uh, you know, buried a couple bills on some tables. Uh, guys, Quite. Michelle, yes. I'm, Michelle, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad you brought this topic to us this week after you and I talked about it in one of your Monday hits uh, a few, a few months ago. So I'm really glad we're having this continuity, and I think we will revisit this one again as the implementation continues to roll out. Coming up after the break, we contemplate well, a theory of mine, that people are having trouble sinking their teeth into provincial elections, specifically some enthusiasm around the Quebec election, which is uh, just a few weeks away. This is the Now News Panel on AMI. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.